Well, happy rodeo weekend, right? I mean, this is, this is it. I hope you've all enjoyed it. We are the cowboy capital of the world, and this is rodeo weekend. But beyond that, today is Palm Sunday, and we're part of a greater place than the cowboy capital of the world. We're part of the kingdom of God, and we're here to celebrate Palm Sunday, which is one of the great days um, in all of Christendom. But it's, it's one day that it, we often talk about, it and it kind of stands by itself, but there's actually more to it. There's the whole Passion Week, the traditional, you know, the traditions of the last week of Jesus' life. We look through what happened and how significant that time was. And so we're going to do that today. We're not going to just talk about Palm Sunday, but we're going to talk about Passion Week, and we're going to actually continue a series that we began at Christmas. And that series, we, we called it What Really Happened? And we looked at sort of historically what really happened at Christmas. You know, if we put all the events together and we put them together in chronological order, it's incredible how it dovetails and how we get a clear perspective of what happened. So we're going to do the same thing today. Today we'll go through um, to Thursday, and what's traditionally called Monday, Thursday, and then we'll pick it up with Good Friday on Friday and then end it with Resurrection Sunday. So it's going to be a whole series that we'll have just in three, three messages. And I think we'll have a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun last time. I have a lot of fun going through it this way because it just, it, it, it helps me to understand it better. But as I do it, I'll do it as a narrative. And there's so many passages to cover that eventually we'll pop things up there, but we won't even have, you know, the, the titles of where they're, they're from. You know, you just have to look that up yourself. So if you want to figure out if I'm telling you the truth or not, and I'm not just making this up for fun, you can look it up for yourself. And you can look really... I would just look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, look at, starting at Matthew chapter 21, read it to the end, and Mark 11, read it to the end, and Luke 19, read it to the end, and John 12, read it to the end. Just read the end of all of those, and that'll prepare you for what we're going to be doing this week, all right? So let's pick it up today. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, but the tricky thing is, did you know that from the G Jewish reckoning, this is really, really important to catch because it's going to keep coming up for us. From the Jewish reckoning, do you know when Palm Sunday actually began? It began at sunset yesterday. Seems kind of weird, huh? Because we go from sunrise to sunrise, but they went from sunset to sunset. So Palm Sunday, kind of try to wrap your Western mind around this and your modern mind around this. Palm Sunday began at sunset Saturday night. Was that, that came right after Shabbat, the Sabbath. They had their Sabbath celebration. And then this whole thing began that night. Um, when did it take place? Do we know more, more specifically? Yeah, we do know. I can tell you the exact date that it took place. Nissan, the 10th. I'm not talking about automobile. That, that was what they called it. They had a different calendar than we did. That also gets a little confusing. It was March or April, and they would calculate it for the full moon so that they could have the celebration so they'd have a full moon so they'd have lighting that night. So it would differ from year to year. But it was always ended up, they'd call it Nissan, the 10th. And actually what happened is you would come in as pilgrims the week before they had the celebration of Passover, what they called um, the, the first, you know, the, they, they called it the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And that would actually start on Nisan the 15th to Nisan the 21st. But everybody would come in as pilgrims as it was and get everything set up 
at the beginning there on what we call Palm Sunday. Well, what year was it? You know what? We have a pretty good idea. We could be off a little bit, but it seems pretty certain it was about the year AD 30. And how do we know that? Remember, we go back to Christmas. We, it's amazing how much of this we know. In those days, they didn't celebrate birthdays like we do. You never had a peasant's, the name, a peasant's birthday. You don't have that dated. But you do have royalty. And we know that in the year 4 BC, King Herod the Great died. And what did King Herod do before, shortly before he died? Who did he try to kill? Huh? Jesus. He went to Bethlehem, right? So it had to be a couple years before that. He said he, said he wanted them, the soldiers to kill every little boy two years of age and under. So Jesus was either born in 6 BC or 5 BC. We can be pretty clear of that. When Jesus starts his ministry, they say to him, hey, Jesus, they said, the, the, the temple is 46 years of age. We know the temple started probably 20, 19, maybe 18, in that ballpark, I think about 18 BC. So that means we're looking at the year about 26, 27. We can calculate Jesus' ministry three and a half years, three, three and a half years. We can look at some of the other people that were ruling at that time. Bingo, we're at 30, AD 30. Very close. Isn't that amazing how precise we can be? This is a historic event. And we know that Jesus was said to be about 30 when he started his ministry, which calculates out, which means he's about 33 at this time. Where does this take place? Bethany. He came to the town of Bethany, a little village up in the top of the Mount of Olives. And he went this day. He and his disciples were staying there during that Shabbat period. And we find them still eating in the evening. He's with three people, three of his closest friends. Martha, Mary, and who else? Lazarus is important because shortly before this, Jesus had just risen him from the dead. And now he's sitting at the table talking to this man who had been dead like maybe a few weeks before. And sitting at the table is Nazareth and maybe some of the other disciples. Martha, of course, is serving. She can never sit down. She's always so busy in serving everybody. And then Mary comes in. And she comes in with this, this jar and, and she, she breaks it and she empties it in his perfume. She puts it on Jesus' feet and she takes her hair. She lets it out and she starts wiping his, teeth, his feet. And the whole room is filled with this incredible aroma. And one of Jesus' disciples gets upset. Just, he just becomes unhinged. And he surprises everybody. He's the guy who's in charge of the money. So maybe that had something to do with it. But all of a sudden, Judas Iscariot gets up and says, we could have spent this money on the poor. We could have used this for other things. And Jesus diffuses it. And he calms him down. And he says, no, you don't understand. She has just prepared my body for burial poor you always have with you. But Judas doesn't get it. Matthew and Mark will later connect this very story with his betrayal because it is believed that this was what triggered it. He'd been stewing for years and all of a sudden he's ready to defect. He's just had it. He just does not see eye to eye with Jesus. The night passes and it's early the next morning. And everybody gathers because that's the day that you go in to the city. 
So you go down, they have big, you know, walls outside. And as you enter the walls at each of the different gates, they would have people singing some of the psalms. It'd be a time of celebration as people would come in and prepare themselves and prepare their lambs. You'd figure out what they were going to buy and, and get themselves all purified and ready for the celebration. And as they're getting ready, Jesus has quite an entourage. He has his 12 disciples, but he has all the women that are with them too, probably as many as that. And he has 70 other main disciples that we learn about elsewhere that are following him. He has at least 120 people there, perhaps 120 who will later start the church. But there's more. There's people that are gathering and they're excited in anticipation of what's going to happen. And as they're all gathering around, um, people are, are, are coming in, not just to see Jesus. You know who they want to see? They want to see Lazarus. Some of them were there when he raised him from the dead and they want to see Jesus again. And some of them have heard about Lazarus and they want to see Lazarus. And some of them are there because they want to kill Lazarus. They want to kill him because he played a pivotal part in Jesus' popularity and they got to get him out of the way. If you're not fond of Jesus, one way to kind of end this whole thing is to get rid of this guy that he's raising from the dead. But there's so many people around that they can't get to him. And meanwhile, Jesus takes two of his disciples and he says, go to the next village, to Bethphage, and I want you to get a donkey for me. There's a donkey there that's tied with its colt. Sounds kind of Oakdalian. You know, we got some animals in here, Cowboy Weekend. And so he says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. He says, the owner will ask you, what are you doing? And you just say, the Lord has need of him. He'll bring him back later and it'll be okay. Some think this is miraculous. I think Jesus probably set it up in advance. At any rate, they go and they get these and they bring them back. And they put some cloaks on it and Jesus sits on, on the little colt. And they begin their journey down the Mount of Olives. And they look out in the Mount of Olives because I've been there not too long ago. And they've got this panoramic view, view of the holy city. Today, and if you look at pictures, there's this golden dome, Dome of the Rock, memorial to Muhammad. But in those days, three times its size was one of the biggest structures in the world, the temple. It was magnificent, made out of limestone. It had different colors on it, green, and at the top it looked like waves, and the light would blast off of it. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And they have this view, and as they have this view, they begin to meander their way down the steep incline of the Mount of Olives. There's a lot of significance here. Because centuries before, several prophecies had been made, most significantly, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, saying that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. And so it's being fulfilled. There's something else that's really amazing is if you're Oakdalian and you have ever dealt with animals, how likely is it for a colt to go down that in steep incline? I mean, this is like a 25-minute walk if you're in good health, but consider all the people and the incline. It must have taken a long time. How likely is it that that colt does not get skittish even with his mama there? It was almost a miracle in itself that Jesus was able to go down and keep complete control over the animal. And it was symbolic of the fact that he was in complete control of the situation. Do you know when, the, when a conqueror rides a stallion into the city, you know what that means, so to speak? He's at war. 
He's fighting to conquer. When he brings a donkey, you know what that means? He's coming in peace because you know why? He's already conquered. Jesus did not come as one coming to conquer Jerusalem. He had already conquered. He was already in control of the situation. And he came down with power. And people were amazed at what they saw, the control he had over these animals, people remembering the prophecies and seeing just his, his magnetic presence. And as they went down, they, they went down into Kidron Valley and they dropped down into the valley. And as they began to move up towards the gate, people began to take clothes, some of their clothes and put them on the ground. And then they began to take fronds from, from palm trees and they, they created a makeshift red carpet for the king to enter the town, to enter Jerusalem. And as they were moving up there and the people were singing, they went through the golden gate. You can't go through the golden gate anymore. Centuries later, the Muslims would read that Jesus was to come back again through that gate. And so they, they sealed it and they put graves there so that they would keep Jesus, ward him off and keep him from coming back again. But it won't stop him. He will come back when it's his time. Jesus went through that gate on this occasion. And as he, he came up to the gate, people were, were pretty excited. Um, and they were singing and they were shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees were sort of the religious fundamentalist of the day. They came up to them and they said, you got to rebuke all these people for saying that. Tell them not to say that. Quiet them down. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And he surveyed the place and he began to weep. And people around him probably thought he was crying because of the emotion. You know, when you, something like that would make a person cry. Uh, all this, these people getting so excited. But those close to him surely could hear that he was lamenting over his prophecy that this city that he so loved would be destroyed. They traveled over to the temple, took a long time, I'm sure, and he walked around and paid his respects to the temple, and then he went back up to Bethany. Need to get up there before it's dark. And that's Palm Sunday. That's what happened on Palm Sunday. I want to leave you with this thought is I want you to praise God for today. Today's a day to praise God. Jesus came so that you could live for eternity. He came to save you. And that was the day that, you know, he kind of made it all known. He came as the king. And it's a day that we should celebrate. I really strongly encourage you to celebrate with your church family today with our potluck and baptisms at the Wagner Ranch afterwards. But I encourage you to go home today and read this passage again and just thank Jesus that he was willing to come and die on the cross and rise from the grave for all of us to make the kingdom of heaven possible. And, and spend some time thinking about that today. And we move to Monday. Monday, they were going down the steep incline again. And Jesus is this time with his disciples and he sees a fig tree. And apparently he didn't get a very good breakfast, maybe a continental breakfast, because he's hungry. He sees that fig tree and says, I want to grab a fig. And they were sweet. So he went over to the fig tree, and when he got there, there were no figs on the tree. So he cursed the tree. Now his disciples had seen Jesus do some things that are a little different, and they probably thought, this is a strange one. Where is he going with this? He didn't say anything. He had a lesson for them that he would teach them later. 
And so they headed down there, and they got to the bottom, and they went back to the area. Now, some people, it sounds almost like Jesus was inside the temple when this next event took place. However, having been to the temple, if you go to the main entrance of the temple, the southern side, you can actually, they've excavated it so you can go down and you can actually see the steps that they would take up. It's magnificent. Um, and these are the steps that take up to the, there's a wall around the, the courtyards around the temple. And you can walk up those steps today. It's all sealed off. There's a mosque on the other side. But you can walk up and you can see where it was. And right to the left of the entrance, so that'd be the west of the entrance, there is a corner there, and, um, and it's amazing. Up above there, there is like a spiral. You can see where there was once a spiral staircase that would take you up to the courtyards. And it's called Robinson's Arch. It was like an arch, and Robinson, I guess, discovered it, so he got his name in the books. So it goes down, and then at the bottom there, there's all these um, purification baths that you would take to prepare yourself to go up into the temple. And it's here at this location that they would sell sacrifices. It was still the temple precincts just before you went in the door. So you would go there and you would purchase um, your sacrifice because it was too hard to bring your livestock with you so you would buy something there. But they'd made a business out of it and they had gone too far. And Jesus, remember, he had cleansed this once before about three years earlier. Well, he comes in again and he turns over the tables and everything else and he says, you guys get out of here. You're making my father's house a den of rob for robbers. And he cleans out the whole place. And he stirs everybody up. And then he begins to hold court there. And uh, the, the kids, you know, uh, they, they're excited. And they start running around and they're saying what their parents said. So, Hosanna to the son of David. And when the Pharisees and religious leaders hear this, they go to Jesus again. They said, you better not let them say that. And Jesus quotes Psalm 8 too. And he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Around this time, it appears some Greeks were watching, and they were fascinated. And so the Greeks actually went to Philip, one of his disciples, and said, could we see Jesus? He goes, hold on, let me check. He went to Andrew and said, what do you think? Andrew said, let's go talk to Jesus. So they went to talk to Jesus, and we don't have a record as to whether he ever actually met with them, but we know that this caused him to go off and speak uh, and, and give a main message for the day. And the main message for the day was he began to talk to them about the fact that um, when the Messiah comes, the, the Son of Man will be one day symbolically lifted up to worship him. And then he talks about how he will be the light to the world. Then Jesus left for a time. We don't know where he went, but when he came back addressing specifically the Greeks, he began to talk about the fact that he had come to save the world. Now, some people think that Jesus came only at this point to save the Jews, but he was most specific and prophetic. He had come to save the world. And I think this is an answer to the Greeks, and it shook people up. How's he doing at this point with the Jewish religious leaders? Not very well. They're very upset with them, and they're trying to figure out how they can stump him, how they can stop him from what he is saying. Um, and then the day draws to a close, and he heads back up to Bethany. On Monday, tomorrow, I want you to think about this. Have you cleansed your temple? Have you cleansed your temple? From God's perspective, and from a biblical perspective, if you come into a personal relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you, and your body becomes the temple. There is no longer a temple in Jerusalem. I've been there. I've seen it. It's not there. 
But if you are in a personal relationship with Jesus, you are his temple. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. So how clean is your temple? I mean, it's on a regular basis. God has forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future, but we need to be in constant communication with him and interacting with him. And if we do something wrong, we need to cleanse our hearts by saying, oh, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. I, I, I thank you that you forgive me. I just want to release that. I give that back to you. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And we just keep moving on, right? You know, we just are in communication with him. But this is a good day to ask yourself the question, have we become, have we become like they were? Have we gotten to the point where we've made the world more important than the Lord? Has our temple been polluted by the way we live our lives, by the things we surround ourselves, by the celebrities we worship, by the things we listen to or read? Or has, has the joy of Jesus been snuffed out in any way in our life? I encourage you to really take time to think through that tomorrow as you prepare yourself for Passion Week. Third day is Tuesday, the biggest day of the week for him. He begins going down, and they run into the fig tree again. And this time, the fig tree has withered and died. And Jesus turns it into a lesson. He talks to them about praying. And he says this. He says, when you pray, you should not doubt. And he says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And he says, you, part of that process, he goes on to say, is you need to make sure that your temple is cleansed, that you've have forgiven others and your, your heart is clean. And then don't doubt. You pray for what God puts in your mind and God will do remarkable, miraculous things. Ironic that Jesus will pray in just a few days that God will spare him from the cross, but God will say, no, that's my will. See that balance? We have to live within that tension. Jesus says, believe in miracles and see what God will do, but pray according to God's will always. Now he, he moves on from here and he, he heads back down again. Um, and the Jewish religious leaders are ready for him. He goes back to the same location. He's holding court, and he's got people all around him. And the Jewish religious leaders, you know what they're thinking of? They're thinking, this is a young buck who has not been trained by us, who is teaching things contrary to what we believe to be true. He's a heretic, but the people like him, so we need to disprove him in front of the people. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to show that he has no authority to say what he's saying. So they go up to him, and they say, where do you get your authority from? And Jesus looks at them and he says, I got a question for you. Was John the Baptist's baptism from God or from men? Let us go and think about that. And they go back in the hell and they go, well, if we say it was from men, the people will get upset because most of them think it was from God. Yeah, but if we say it's from God, they're going to get upset because they're going to say, why didn't you support it more? So they went back and they said, well, we really don't know. Do you understand what's happening here? They are demonstrating that they don't have a base of authority. Their authority is based on what's popular or what is going to be you know, helpful for them. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't have any answer to that, then I don't have an answer for you. And, and you can imagine just sort of laughing at them. And the people are laughing because it just exposes them. And then Jesus turns around and he says this, I, I have a story for you. I'm going to tell you a couple stories now. I'm going to keep them really brief because we don't have time to go into them all. I'll give you the basic gist of it. He says, I have a story for you. He says, there was a man who asked his son to do, he had two sons. He asked him to do something for him. And one son said, I'll do it. And he didn't. The other son said, I won't do it. And he did. Which son was right? I said, well, the second son. 
He said, the religious leaders said, we'll do it, Lord, and they don't. But I have here today some people that were tax collectors and prostitutes who said, we won't do it, and they did. Which is better? Let me tell you another story. Let me tell you another story I think you'll enjoy. It's a story of the tenants. They had property, and the master uh, wanted to collect his dues from their property, and so he sent some servants to get it, and they killed him. So he sent his own son. He figured they wouldn't hurt his son. They killed his son. God's property is this planet. The religious leaders were left to run things. They killed the prophets that were sent, and now they're going to kill the Messiah. They're going to kill God's son. Well, these guys... You know what they did? It's so ironic. They got together and they were mad now. And they said, you know what we need to do? We need to kill this guy. That's exactly what they did. I mean, it's like, talk about weird prophecies. And so then Jesus went on and says, there's a wedding feast. And everybody goes to the wedding feast. Everybody's invited. All the important people, religious leaders are invited. But they're just too full of themselves. So they, they don't go to the wedding feast. So everybody is invited off the streets and they come. And someone tries to sneak in and God throws them out. Well, the religious leaders realize he's talking about them, and they're getting really angry, but they, they have another one for him. So they say, okay, it's our turn. We have another question for you. Do you pay taxes to Caesar or not? Ah, they've trapped him. If he says you, do, you pay taxes to Caesar, what are the Jewish people going to say? We don't want to pay taxes to Caesar. What are you talking about? If he says you don't pay taxes to Caesar, what well, we'll issue uh, you know, an arrest, a, a citation for his arrest. What is he going to say? Jesus took the coin, looks at both sides, he says, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. In other words, God is over Caesar. But if God puts Caesar in a place where he's, in, he's put him over you, then you respect him. But overall, you respect God. Now they're stumped. So now it's time for the religious liberals to come in. It's kind of like today, right? You know, now it's the liberals' turn. We've the fundamentalists have tried. Now the liberals are going to try. And they, they don't even believe in the resurrection, right? But they've got a question that stumps everybody. They're so excited. They're giddy. They're going to they're get them on this one. It's, nobody's been able to answer this question. Okay, here's, here's the question. Um, Jesus, there's this widow. She's been married. She's been, she's, yeah, all of her husbands die. Um, they, they call her the black widow. Um, <laughs> And she's had seven husbands. Who's she going to be married to in heaven? See, because there's, if, if you can't answer that question, then there is no heaven, right? There is no resurrection. So Jesus just sort of smiles and he says, how foolish, basically. He says, you don't understand heaven. Heaven's not the same as earth. We're not going to have marriages in heaven. It'll be different. But what you're really asking me is, is there a resurrection or not? Have you ever heard that God is the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God who was the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. He's the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in present tense. Because he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And now it's like, whoa, whoa. What do, what do we do now? So finally, they back off and this young lawyer comes up and he says, uh, Jesus, I've got a question. Yeah, what's your question? What's the most important commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Love your neighbors yourself. You can't separate the two. The two hang together. As we say, your, your love for God should lead you to love your world. And now everybody's silenced. So Jesus says, okay, my turn. In Psalm 110, verse 1, 
King David calls the Messiah basically his Lord. And yet the Messiah isn't born yet because he comes later as his descendant. How can that be? They can't answer the question. So he answers for them in a sense. He doesn't answer the question directly. He just says, the problem with you is you're basically hypocrites. You're shallow, you're pretentious, and you're leading the people down the wrong path. And when God has sent people to you to show you the direction you should go, you have killed the very prophets that he sent to help you out. He says, you, you've made a mockery of your position. And then he, he quotes, he talks about, uh, he prophesies, laments, and, and prophesies again the destruction of Jerusalem. He says it would be, it is a house that is left desolate. And he identifies himself with the Messiah and Savior in reference to Psalm 118, verse 26. And he says he will come only after judgment and only when they are finally ready to receive him. Now this, we've just covered this in a very short period of time, but this probably took almost all day. And as they got to the later part of the day, Jesus and his disciples went back up into the courtyards and they walked around the temple and they went to the treasury and they saw a widow put two coins into the treasuries. And Jesus said, here's a lesson for you. She has given more than anybody else because they gave out of their plenty. She gave all that she had. And as they're walking away, one of the disciples turned and looked at the temple and said, man, this is so beautiful. God has blessed us with such a beautiful temple. And Jesus said, there will come a day when not one stone will be left standing over another. And that's true. It was completely destroyed. And they began to walk back up. And as they walked up, it's a steep road. You know, they, they're tired, and so they would take little breaks along the way. They had a favorite place where they would stop called the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where there's these old, gnarled olive trees, and they were probably hanging out somewhere around there and talking. And this topic kept coming up about the temple. And finally, uh, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, his four closest disciples, his scholars call them the, the inner circle, they came up to Jesus and they said, you know, Jesus... Tell us when this is going to happen. When is this going to be destroyed? And furthermore, how's the end going to work out? How's this all going to play out? And so Jesus gave him his all that discourse. He told them about the persecutions and the suffering that would take place, about the destruction of Jerusalem, about some of the things that would happen in the future. But he was adamant that no one knew the time or the day, not even he knew or the angels, but only God the Father. And after he had talked to them, they went back up to Bethany for the evening. Are you bold for Jesus as he was bold for you? Are you bold for Jesus as he was bold for you? Do you understand that because of Tuesday, we have Resurrection Sunday? Up to that point, they just wanted to outsmart him. But when he stood forward and called them out and identified himself essentially as Messiah, what were they going to do? They had to take him out. Are we willing to stand for him? Are we willing to even tell people that we know, identify the people, you know, the 8 to 15 people that you know best in your life that don't know Christ or don't go to church? Are you willing to even let them know that you know Jesus? Do you pray for them? Are you a witness to them through your life, through you, the way you conduct yourself? Do you ever tell them about him? Think about them, pray about them this week. Think about how you can be a witness for Jesus. Who can you invite to Resurrection Sunday? 
Think about it this Tuesday especially. Who will it be? And maybe invite somebody that day. We move to Wednesday. Wednesday's the quietest day. We don't have much content. He spoke in the morning. He taught. He told his disciples privately that he was going to be crucified again. We think what happened is that's the day before really ever the preparation day for the, um, for the Passover meal. So it was kind of a quiet day. You know how we do when we have holidays, people close up shop early and go home. So they did a little bit of stuff in the morning and then they went home and it was kind of a quiet time with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and the disciples and everybody just kind of taking it easy and getting ready for the big day. It wasn't a quiet day for the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy or the Council of the Jews. They met at Caiaphas' home. He was their high priest. And they were planning on how they could kill Jesus. Knock on the door came. A person came in, a servant, to tell them they had a guest. They brought the guest in. His name was Judas Iscariot. Judas had slipped away from the others. And he came to promise that he would deliver Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. Pray for Christian leaders. Pray for Christian leaders. You know, leaders, whether they be Christians or not, tend to falter and fall when they're in times of crisis. That's why there's so few people, really, percentage-wise, that we can say have really been good leaders throughout history. And that tends to be true. Even followers of Christ don't always follow Jesus like they should during times of crisis. So pray for leaders and pray for yourself. What has God called you to do? Will you be faithful with your calling Till the end. It's a good time for us to recommit ourselves and say, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do and I'm going to pray for others to do the same, especially for those that are in leadership uh, in our world today. Now, we get to the last day. Thursday, which is sometimes called, well, traditionally, uh, it's called Monday Thursday. It was actually the first day of unleavened bread. So remember again how this is, a little bit tricky here. They didn't actually start eating until Good Friday. Thursday was the preparation time. At sunset on Thursday, it's Good Friday. A little confusing, but again, that, at sunset, it's Good Friday. This is the way it works. They have from sunset on Thursday till sunset on Friday to take the Passover meal. So they'd be sacrificing sheep on both days. And they had to take the meal sometime within there, and they had to do it inside the walls of the city. So Jesus gets Peter and John, whom he's grooming to be his primary leaders, and he says, I want you guys to go prepare for us. Where will we go, Lord? Go into the walls, go into the gate, and when you go in, there's going to be a man there, and he's going to have a jar in his head. Usually women had jars in their head, but this guy's going to have a jar in his head. You'll recognize him. And when you go up to him, he'll be waiting for you, and he will take you to the house where we're going to have our meal. So he took them to this house. You can go to a house there today. It's probably not the same house, but it was like a stone house. These are nice houses made all of stone, really pretty. And you'd be up in the upper room where it's a little cooler, um, and that's where we're, we're going to eat. It has it all set up. So they had to go down. They had to get the sheep. They had to prepare to get the lamb. They had to prepare the lamb. They had to get all the spices ready. They had to decorate the house. It was like an all-day job. Peter and John are doing work all day. And then as the sun is setting... Now we're coming into Good Friday. Now we're coming into the first day of, uh, of unleavened bread, the, the, the day of the feast, right? This is the day of the festival. And so they come in, the others come in, they've got a problem. They don't have a servant to wash their feet because their feet would get all dirty. Use this servant would do that. Jesus 
washes their feet. This makes Peter especially uncomfortable. But Jesus washes their feet and he begins to teach them about servant leadership, that a leader should be a servant and he wants them to be servants to one another. So he tells them about this and then they get together and they begin to eat and Jesus says they're eating, you know, he, he kind of he kills the mood, you know. He, he, they're, they're having this nice meal and Jesus says, I'm troubled. Well, what's bothering you, Lord? I'm troubled because one of you is going to betray me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. They all kept saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Not me. I won't do it. Now, they were, they were eating. They would have been eating. It was a fancy meal, so they would be having cushions on the ground. So they're on the ground. It's a low table, and they're all leaning. You know, so usually you lean to your right side. And so the closest person to Jesus would be the youngest person. If Jesus is the, the main host here, then the person to his left, immediate left, would be the youngest person in the room. That's how it went. And he would be the person who could lean over and talk to Jesus because he would be right next to him. And so the person next to him was John. John was the youngest person. The person who sat in the lowest seat, the least important seat, would be the person directly apart, across from John. Peter begins to talk to John. Peter is that person. Peter had out-wrestled the others for the lowest position at the table just to show that he was indeed the greatest servant leader. And he is now talking to John. He says, John, ask him who's going to betray him. Surely he knows. So John says, okay, master, Lord, who's going to betray us, betray you? And Jesus says this. He says, it is he to whom I give the morsel, this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. The only person he could really give that to was either John or the person next to him, the person in the seat of honor who happened to be Judas Iscariot. And as he gave it to him, we're told that Satan entered Judas, and he said, is it I, Rabbi? And some discussion took place. Synopsis of it is this. You have said so. What you're going to do, do quickly. Judas got up and left. And the others thought maybe he was going out to give food, to give some money to the poor, which you would typically do during the festival. But they were consumed with their own discussion. They were discussing who would betray him, and that led to discussing who was really the greatest among them. And Jesus said, do you understand that I did not come to rule you, but to serve you? And that's what I'm asking you to do to one another. In fact, I'm going to serve you to the degree that today I am soon to be betrayed and I will die. And they all got upset, but especially Peter, the voice, their vociferous leader, who possibly even pounded the table, said, no, 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 I won't do it. I'm not going to do it. Understand, these are very emotional people. The Galileans were especially known for being very emotional. They were kind of, you know, very emotive kind of people. And so Jesus just looks him in the eye and says, today you will betray me three times. Things get kind of quiet. Jesus goes on and says, what has to be done will be done, and you're not going to change it. I'm telling you what's going to happen, and you're not going to change it. And then he does something that surprises everybody. Sometime in the course of this conversation, he changes, he changes the Passover meal. And he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is symbolic of my body being broken for you. And then he takes the, the wine and he says, this is symbolic of my blood being poured out for you for the sake of the new covenant I'm making for all of eternity with you. And he implements what today we call the Lord's Supper. Do you understand the meaning of the Passover meal the meaning of the Passover meal was that God 
was delivering the Jewish people from physical captivity and slavery under Egypt. This was Independence Day for them. Symbolically, Jesus is freeing us from captivity and slavery to sin that we might go into the kingdom of God. This is Independence Day for us. And Jesus makes it loud and clear to them. They don't quite grasp it, but he continues to teach them. And then with their bellies filled and their minds relaxed, Jesus launches into his last discourse. And he tells them, today I've come to bring you a new commandment that you should love one another. That's the most important thing. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will enable you. You will supernaturally be able to love one another and do the things that I want you to do. He will help you to overpower this world. And then Jesus ends in prayer and he prays that they will all work together and come together as one in him. Then as you would traditionally do, they sang. Like we do after communion. They sang. And they began their journey back home in the full moon so that they could see. And they began climbing up the Mount of Olives and they came to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll stop there because now again it's Good Friday and we'll be talking about that this Friday. Prepare your hearts for that. Um, read the Lord's Supper. Read the Lord, one of the versions of the Lord's Supper on, on Thursday. You can take it if you want. We're going to be taking it together on, on Friday. Prepare your heart. Think about what Jesus did for you and prepare your heart for Good Friday. And then we'll be together and we'll take Good Friday together. So once again, you know, all this is a synopsis, but we get a good feeling for what really happened the last week of Jesus' life. So hopefully it's, it's a meaningful experience for you. Uh, if you've not yet come into a personal relationship with Jesus, um, we encourage you to come and talk to us and so that we can talk to you about how you might come into that relationship with him so that today you might experience the assurance of your resurrection based on his resurrection, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. Join me in a word of prayer, please. Father, thank you so much uh, for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins for this magnificent week. Pray that it would be all the more meaningful to us this year as we wrestle through these things and as we prepare our hearts and that uh, we will really celebrate as a result on um, Resurrection Sunday. We thank you for this time and pray for those that may not know you, that they'd come to know you and for the rest of us to grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.